Well, you want to turn to Genesis chapter 23. Genesis chapter 23. Now, we just got through seeing Abraham have the loss of Ishmael as he was sent away, his son that he greatly loved. And then we saw the Lord asking him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And he believed in the resurrection. Even though the resurrection had never happened, he, in his mind, thought of it. And he said, Isaac is, has to raise from the dead because God said through Isaac, your descendant shall be. And he's never been married, doesn't have kids. And even if he dies on this Mount Moriah, he will come back with me down the hill. But now we're going to see tonight another loss. And that is the death of Sarah. It tells us in verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. By the way, this is the only person in all the Bible that the, of a woman that her age is given. You'll never find. So it's not polite to ask a woman her age, and the Bible doesn't put it in there, except for this one. Because I think once you're, you know, you start getting up in years, you're sort of proud of it. You know, in your 40s, don't ask, but hey, if you're 106, ask. You know, because I'm sort of proud of that. So, you know, maybe that was the case, but, you know, I think it also gives some indicators helping us, because in the last chapter, chapter 22, I said, I believe, I have no reason to prove that, but I think Isaiah was the same age as Jesus, 33 years old, when Abraham offered him up. Well, now this would make Isaac 37 at Sarah's death. Remember, she was 90, and now she's 127, 37 years, that Isaac. And that would make Abraham 137 years old, and by the way, this is also the only place in the Bible where we have it told about a woman's death. Only place age and only place um, where it shows the death of a woman in all of the Bible. Now, interesting, we don't have a lot in Genesis on Sarah other than she was Abraham's wife and she laughed at God when he said, you're going to have a child here. But there is a, two other places in the Bible that it does talk about Sarah. We should make a note of that. One is found in Isaiah 51, verse 1 and 2. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and here it is, and to Sarah, who bore you. And I, will, I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. The other place is probably one of the most complimentary passages on God's desire for the heart of a woman in all the Bible. And that's found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 through 6. 
Do not let your adorning be merely outward, the arranging of hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, an incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So we read those first two verses and we realize what touches the heart of God more than anything is not the outward beauty, but it's the inward beauty. And we saw how Sarah was so desirous to Pharaoh. And remember Abraham, before they left there, Chaldees says, Sarah, do me this kind favor. Uh, say you're my sister, if anybody asks, so I'm not killed, so they can take you. I mean, he, he knew she, he had a beautiful wife, and, and she understood it. But then when she was n- almost 90 years old, Abimelech wanted her in his harem. And you go, wow, 90 years old, and, and she's still beautiful. And I think most of everything was covered. It was the eyes, pretty much, you're seeing. But maybe it was them talking to them. And... Uh, and the reality is, is that it was a beauty that was coming from her, that, that inner heart that made her so desirable by these men. It wasn't the outward beauty or just the outward beauty. And, and I can tell you, I, I've met guys and girls that are ugly, and then you get to know them, and they're very beautiful. They become very attractive once you... Uh, see the whole picture, not just the outer shell, and you begin to realize why somebody is so attracted to them. And I've also seen very beautiful girls who could be on a magazine, and five minutes after getting to know them, I think they're ugly. So what comes out of the mouth, what comes out of the heart, definitely does change, uh, even how you look at them physically. Well, going on in 1 Peter 3, 5, for in this manner... In former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Now you say, who is God thinking about in verse 3, 4, and 5? He tells us now, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So Sarah was an example of all of those things. She had an outward beauty. She had gold. She had fine apparel. She could have uh, done herself uh, royally because of their wealth, but evidently she didn't. But at the same time, she was a treasure because of the inward beauty, and God saw it, and it was precious in his eyes. Isn't that really who we want to be beautiful for more than anything? The Lord And then he he says, you know, there are women, in particular, Sarah. And she had such a spirit, and she was adorned with that spirit. And that gentle and quiet spirit that's submissive to her husband, not to all men, but to her husband. And, And it sort of alludes to the fact that when Abraham asked her to do something that really wasn't right... Submitted to him anyway. And in this case, it was saying, you're my sister, and deny that you're my wife, or you know, try to trick him into thinking you're not my wife and only my sister. And even though Abraham was wrong, 
of that. Nevertheless, um, the Lord sought it from her as a precious commodity. Well, moving on to verse 2. Saw some people, we just, we're in Genesis chapter 2, and I'm going to also grab this microphone. And I'm going to, is this on still? Yeah, okay. Let me see if I can make this one also work. We're having a little bit of technical problems here. We do have some verses also. Dennis, do you want to hand verses out? If you guys didn't get a copy of that, you might want that as well. I thought Dennis might grab you on the way in, but he was reading his Bible, I think. So, now verse 2. So Sarah died in Kirith Arba, that's Hebron area, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So evidently, they were separated at this time. And uh, whether Abraham went on a trip or we don't know, but it does give the idea that maybe she died very quickly. And at the time he got back to her, she had already died. Now, as we've been going through Genesis, we have mentioned several times, this is the first time this word is ever used. And right here in verse 2, the first time the word weep, that's the Hebrew word baka, B-A-C-A or B-A-K-A, is used in the Bible. And it's the first time mourn is used in the Bible. And it's over the death of his wife. Abraham mourning, weeping over death of his wife. And so we sort of want to stop a moment and, and think about this, taking uh, the concept of this. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed, oh, happy are you. When your heart is still tender, where you're not aged and scarred and cynical and, and yet you, you can weep. That's a good sign of a healthy heart. Interesting, when Jesus tells the story in Luke 16 about the poor man Lazarus who had died, and it says he went into the bosom of Abraham. Later, Jesus would call it paradise. But interesting that the, where that Lazarus would be comforted was in the actual bosom of Abraham. And uh, it's interesting. The first time weep, mourn, is found in the Bible is referring to Abraham's weeping and mourning. And now we find in his bosom is a place where those who weep and mourn in this life, when they go into the next, they find Father Abraham, who is the great comforter in his bosom. They found themselves there. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and here it is, the God of all comfort who comforts us in our tribulations that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves 
are comforted. So when we weep, when we mourn, it changes us. And it causes within us that scarring. It causes within us an ability to now help others when they are mourning over the same things or in the same way. Now, I have had my youngest son at 21 who died, and and it's changed me. And it's interesting that often I meet people, and I can tell they've lost a child without them telling me. There's something about them that has been tenderized, has made them unique. I was listening to a pastor who has lost a child, but he also lost a wife. And he was describing the difference in the pain of the two. And they're not similar. (laughs) They're both equally horrible in their own way. But yet, at the same time, when I talk to people who have lost a child, the change that it produced in you is something you don't want to change back. It's like, I'm glad I'm here, but the price to get here was too great. But now that I'm here, I would never go back because I want to be the person that this weeping, this mourning, this difficulty has created within me. We find an interesting story in John 11. In verse 32 to 36, you know it well. This is another Lazarus, the good friend of Jesus who died. Keep trying, Josh. We're still getting feedback. And um, it says here in, in verse 32, Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you are... Did you shut this one off? Yeah, keep that one on, see if we can get it working. We have one of them working here. Sorry about that, guy. Verse 32. You guys can hear me okay? Okay, because I can't hear myself anymore, but that's okay. Verse 32, once again. Then when Jesus came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, your brother would have not died. So when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he mourned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. And notice the response of the people at Jesus weeping. The Jews said, see how much he loved him. Now what's interesting about this story is we know that Jesus had already been shown by the Father that he was going to be raised from the dead in a couple of minutes. (laughs) I mean, literally, it it wasn't like, oh yeah, someday in the future, when the resurrection of the last day comes, he'll be raised from the dead. That's what Jesus said to Mary. She goes, well, I, I know he'll be raised from the dead eventually, but I'm talking about now. But Jesus did raise him from the dead now, but yet he wept. And you ask, what was he weeping at? And I think he was weeping at, first of all, sorrow that death brings. There there is a sorrow that, that is not like anything else. 
when somebody you love, somebody that completes you, especially your wife or somebody that, that adds so much to your life and your life is going to be completely different after they're gone. It is a, a great troubling. And, and it says that Jesus was groaning in the spirit. He was troubled in the spirit when he saw the weeping of Mary and Martha and then all the Jews that were weeping. Here's what I think he was really weeping about. This is something that should not exist. And it never would have existed if sin didn't come in the world. And the ultimate pain, out of all the pains that a sinful world brings us, is that one, where you get so close to somebody, especially a family member, and now they're going to be no longer with you. But Jesus weeping with them, what was evident in his weeping was an overwhelming love that he had for Lazarus, for Mary and Martha. There was just an overwhelming love. And again, he's the God of all comfort, isn't he? And so uh, it's, it's interesting as you keep following this trail through the Bible on weeping. It's interesting, Psalm 56, 8 says that God puts my tears, David said, into your bottle. So tears are a precious commodity. Tears are something that God not only takes notice, but he hangs on to it as a treasure. This is interesting to, to realize that from God's point of view, the way he looks at tears. And of course, it's, it's a miracle when you look at our bodies and how the tear ducts are made and how they come out of our eyes, you know, rather than our fingers or toes or something, you know. It, it's all a part of something deep and even spiritual. Well, where's it all going to end? In Revelation 21, look at those first seven verses. I, I was just going to read verse four, but I thought, oh, why not? Let's go all the way. Verse one uh, of Revelation 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And verse 4 now, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. Could he get any more uh, emphatic? He makes it clear, no more tears. And then he says, what are those tears from? Death, from the sorrow that death brings, from the deep mourning and crying. There shall be no more pain, especially the pain of losing a loved one. And the former things have been passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountains of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, 
and he shall be my son. So interesting, the first time mourning and weeping is used in the Bible, the sorrow over the loss of a bride. The last time weeping is mentioned in the Bible is the husband, Jesus, talking to the bride of Christ, saying, I'll never weep over you, <laughs> and you'll never weep. It's all going to be gone. In the new Jerusalem, there'll be no weeping, no sorrow, no pain, no suffering. And so Sarah died, but not really, did she? In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8, we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Notice those words in verse 8. We are confident. We are pleased, well pleased, of the certainty. The moment we leave this body, we are with the Lord. And of course, Paul said, for me to live as Christ and to die, well, that's gain. No loss, no pain, no sorrow, it's gain. Paul makes an important distinction in Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 18. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, like Sarah, lest you sorrow or weep or mourn as others who have no hope. So we mourn, we weep, but it's not a hopeless mourning or weeping. It is truly weeping over something that should have never existed. It's unnatural. It's wrong. And we sense that. When we see that person who's dead, we see life in them. And they should have life for really forever, but for many years to come. And here he's making it clear that if we weep, we do not want to weep in a way that dishonors God by like saying, oh, it's like everybody on the planet who loses a loved one. No, those handful of people, that remnant of believers on planet Earth, when we weep, it's different. And it's supposed to be different because we know very, very soon we're going to be with them. He goes on to say, just to make the point, for we who believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring <clears throat> with him those who have sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord by no means shall precede those who are asleep. Or that's the term who died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then he, we who are alive and remain, shall be caught up together, harpazo, or raptured, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, what? Comfort one another with these words. So when somebody dies now, we mourn, we weep, mainly for us, mainly at the tragedy that nobody should ever die. And then we encourage one another in the Lord. We say to one another in the Lord, well, they just got in the front of the line. We're all going to be raptured together in a twinkling of an eye. So <laughs> it'll seem like instantaneous. 
But to those who are able to calculate by another calculation other than a second, whoever has the, the fraction of a second down, they'll say, nope, I saw him. He was a, you know, I don't know, one hundredth of a second in front of you. But it's all together. We're going to be caught up in the air. I mean, just being in the air, that's going to be pretty cool, huh? And then to have our new body in the air, and then to be with Jesus in the air, and then to be with those that have died before us in the air, and then we all go together to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a glorious day that will be. Sometime back, my littlest sister died from cancer. Her husband had died less than a year before her, and then just a few years before that, my son had died. And as she was heading towards death, she had not died yet, I, I had this distinct dream. And we were hiking. It looked like Southern California hiking. And I'm trying to get up this steep embankment. It was sandy and it was difficult and I just wasn't going to make it. And all of a sudden I see this hand and it was my son Tracy's hand who had died. And he pulled me on up and him and Chip, who had died, my brother-in-law, were looking at me sort of irritatedly, and I looked behind me, and everybody else is coming. They're like, what took you guys so long? It's like, well, how long have you been here? Oh, about five minutes. And it was such a humorous but comforting moment. It is just a minute away, and it? Life is just a vapor. Well, Moving on to verse 3. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth. So he now comes to the people of the land. No doubt they've heard that this great princess has died. And um, they're gathering around to whatever degree. He sees the owner of a piece of property that Abraham is familiar with. And the, the sons of Heth, which is the, eventually they're going to be the Hittites. And we're going to learn that Esau, if you remember, married two Hittite women. Who's another famous Hittite? Bathsheba's husband, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, one of the mighty men of David. Well, we're going to see the Hittites quite a bit. Eventually... It must have gotten um, into the culture and uh, dissipated. But either way, he says in verse 4, I am a foreigner and a visitor or a stranger among you. Do you guys remember that? Where in Hebrews, we, we thought the Lord was saying something about Abraham but the Lord really wasn't saying this about Abraham. Abraham had first said it about himself. Remember in Hebrews 11, verse 13 to 16? These all died in faith, not having received the promise. Abraham didn't see the suns as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. Abraham only saw one son of promise when he died, right? No grandkids. And so they died without receiving the promise but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, confessed that they were, here it is, strangers and pilgrims on the earth. 
For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. You see, the big thing about this chapter 23 is that they didn't cart Sarah back to the Ur of Chaldees to be buried. She's buried there because this is now her homeland. I'm sure it came up because on when Jacob dies, they take him from Egypt back to the promised land to be buried in this very place. And so, again, it, it reveals where their heart's at. Interesting, I, so many passages, I had to just leave them out. But in, in Psalms 84, verse 5, it, it says, Blessed is he whose strength is in the Lord, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Referring back to Abraham. And then it says this, Though they go through the valley of Baca, we just learned that word, right? In the Psalm 84, they actually use the Hebrew word there, B-A-C-A, Baca. Though they go through the valley of Baca, the Lord says, make it a spring. What's that mean? That means let your pain become something that refreshes and comforts the next guy. Your tears are going to create a spring. And then it says, and then the rains will come and make pools. You've created a, a place where people who traveling through their valley of Baca will find a place of refreshing and comforting. And then the next verse says, because he's found from strength to strength in the Lord. And so here he makes it clear, I am a pilgrim. I'm a sojourner. I'm not a guy that's putting down roots yet. Now, of course, all this land was Abraham's, but he doesn't mention that. But he says in verse 4, Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham and said to him, Listen to this, Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince amongst us. Wow. What a contrast between him and Lot. Remember Lot? He was in the gates of the city. He wanted to see himself as a leader there amongst the people of the land. And when it came down to it, they mocked him, saying, Who are you? You're a foreigner. And you're talking to us. You're trying to lord it over us. You're trying to be a judge to us. Get out of here. No respect. Abraham's the opposite. He's keeping himself separate from the people. He's building altars and worshiping the Lord. He's having very little contact with these people. But yet, as they observe him from afar, you are a mighty prince. You know, Hebrew, that term mighty is the one for God. It literally does mean you are a prince of God. This is what they saw. You are a prince from God. Wow, so powerful. And indeed, Sarah was a princess from God. 
You're a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of your burial places. None of us will, uh, will hold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and notice here, first of two times, he bows himself to the people of the land and the sons of Heth, showing respect, showing honor. And he spoke with them saying, it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and meet with me Ephron the son of Zoar for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah. So I've heard Machpelah, I've heard Machpelah. I practice it several times today in the Hebrew, Machpelah. There you go, you got it right now. Um, give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as the property for the burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth and Ephron in the Hittite. There it is, tells us now. The Hittites answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered um, at the gate of his city, saying. Just a real quick note here. We don't have a lot of time. But people will look at this and say, the Hittites as a people actually didn't come about for many, many hundreds of years into the future. So how can there actually be Hittites here? They probably weren't officially known as the Hittites here. But again, when somebody's writing and they're writing a thousand years later, it's not uncommon to, for them to insert modern knowledge into the past story. So was Heth and these guys known as the Hittites at this time? No, they weren't. But nevertheless, this is where the Hittites' root system come from. Anyway, just a quick note. I, there's so many different things on here. Um, verse 11, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you, bury your dead. And Abraham for the second time, bowed himself down before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, if you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, my Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So this is how they do it in the culture to this day. You know, when you go into a shop, it's like, oh, how much is that? Uh, $500, $500. Well, what do you think it's worth? Five dollars. Oh, you insulted me. Yeah, you insulted me. Oh, you know, and, and, and so eventually you, you find a price somewhere in the middle. So the idea was he would come up with this outrageous price of 400 shekels of silver. Let me, let me explain to you how outrageous of a price this is. Years later, a plague came upon Jerusalem after David had built his own house there, a palace. And right above the palace was a piece of land. And it had on top of that a bedrock, which made the land very, very expensive. In the city of Jerusalem, above the palace, 
a, a place where a guy was farming with a giant bedrock to, to be able to um, sort their grain out. And David went up there to say, hey, I need to buy your land. And, and the guy says, I'll, I'll give it to you. He goes, nope, I want to pay you full price. You know how much that very expensive property was? 50 shekels of silver. So 400 shekels of silver for a cave? It's outrageous. And Abraham was supposed to say, oh, that's ridiculous. I'll give you 10. That was what was supposed to happen, and they would end up somewhere along the way. But Abraham, he's got so much gold and silver. Remember, he learned that way back. He was, after he came out of Egypt, he was a man very rich with gold and silver. Where is he going to spend it? He's been carting around this stuff. All the servants are going, 400, 800, give it to him. I'm the one who carries the box. Yeah, you know. But anyway, he gave it to him an extraordinary price. And Abraham listened to the Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver, and they gave it to the currency of the, the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which is in Machpelah, which was by Mamre, the field of the cave, which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded. Of course, you can go there today. There's a mosque mainly on this site. Um, but also there's a Christian church and also there's a Jewish synagogue all use the same building. Incredible. Um, you, you can look it up on YouTube, McPella, and, and see a few different videos on it. But of course, Israel was deforested for a number of reasons. But at one time, Bethlehem and all around that and McPella all around that were giant trees and lions and bears. And it was a, it was a forest. Now it's a desert. But anyway... In verse 18, so Abraham has a possession in the presence of the sons of Eth before all who went in the gate of the city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Magdala before Mamre, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that were in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as the property for the burial place. I want to read a couple of verses. Remember the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection? Very sad, you see. They were Sadducees. And they, were, they made up this outrageous thing about a guy who died and, and his wife married his brother and it went, happened to seven brothers. So when they get to heaven, whose wife she's going to be? And Jesus says to them in Mark 12, 24, Jesus answered and said to them, are you not therefore mistaken? Two reasons. Because you do not know the scriptures. Secondly, you don't know the power of God. And then he finishes that up by saying, had you known the scriptures, had you believed in the scriptures, had you believed in the power of God concerning the dead that raise, you have not read in the book of Moses. The Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Bible only. They rejected all the rest. So didn't you read in the Torah that you only accept? In the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You therefore are greatly mistaken, greatly mistaken. I love that because Sarah is not dead. Her body died, but she very much was in a place of paradise and of comfort waiting for the resurrection of Christ and she would be released 
from Sheol and now in the very presence of the Lord. All of us now in the New Testament to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. We should not doubt the scriptures. We should not doubt the power of God right down to a little tiny mark that makes a verb present tense. You see, Jesus says, if you just looked at the mark, the one little tiny mark, you would have saw that it wasn't the past tense of the verb to be. It was the present tense of the verb to be. That God presently, thousands of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died, they, he is their God right now. They're, they're enjoying fellowship with him even right now. Well, Lord, we thank you for this night. We thank you for your word. We thank you for washing us in the water of the word. We thank you for strengthening us in the inner man. And Lord, honor us as we go line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, that you would do a deeper and deeper and deeper work of grace in us. And we do ask your kingdom to come, your will to be done. We ask that we would be those who can comfort those who need the comfort and they would see the love of Jesus in us as we weep with them, as we comfort them, as we speak the words uh, concerning the rapture coming and we're soon going to all be together, that we don't weep without complete and joyful hope. Mm. We're going to go into a time of worship and prayer and I'll just ask right now that a couple of you guys, why Matthias and Cheryl come up, you guys get adjusted. Just uh, let's pray a couple of prayers of things that are on your heart, the passage tonight and concerning the world around us. Let's believe God for great things.